Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 30. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In episode 30, I'm talking with Kelly Palmer. Kelly is a writer, a creative, an advocate, and yoga teacher who focuses on the service of making wellness spaces equitable, accessible, sustainable and safe for black indigenous and other people of color in this episode kelly and i talk about orienting ourselves toward race equity work in our current moment we discuss what can happen when we use our imagination to creatively solve problems together rather than getting stuck in guilt inaction or a sense of it's always been that way and it's impossible to change we also talk about developing resilience for staying with the discomfort that conversations about topics like race equity can bring up and finally we chat about Kelly's upcoming course, Race and Equity in Yoga, Disruption as a Practice, and let folks know what they can expect if they join. Hope this episode is helpful to y'all. Here we go. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Amber. I'm glad to be here on this side of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Kelly is uh, our producer, our editor, uh, all all things podcast after we run our mouths are due to Kelly. So thanks, Kelly, yeah. for all your support. I mean, it's it. great. I get to listen to every episode. So <laughs> popping hot in these yoga social justice streets. Right. So for those of uh, for those of us listening who don't know you, can you introduce yourself? Tell people a little bit about who you are type of work you do? What's your life like these days? I can. Well, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is Kelly Nicole Palmer, um, and I'm based in North Carolina uh, on Sugary and Catawba, unceded land. And um, hmm, jobs I have, I, um, I'm a writer and a creative, and I also um, am an advocate in community uh, for access to liberation and healing. And um, I, you know, get to serve in a bunch of different capacities. So I can teach yoga sometimes. I work for Accessible Yoga, the nonprofit and the training school. Um, I do trainings, um, race equity trainings, and uh, participate in teacher trainings. Before the pandemic, I led retreats, uh, in-person retreats um, in different places, but um mainly in on the east coast and i've led a few out of the country and then yeah i started a nonprofit three years ago four years ago almost uh that acts that focuses on access to wellness for black and indigenous people of color um as well as uh, wealth and resource redistribution so yeah those are the jobs i also parent two people and and partner to another person so those aren't jobs but they are important <laughs> all busy parts of your life yes, mm -hmm. yes. so um Kelly, uh, for those of you that don't know, is um, an inst a course instructor for us at the Accessible Yoga Training School and has a course coming up, Race and Equity in Yoga Disruption as a Practice, which is the second cohort that we've run of this particular training. And we had you on the podcast as I think like one of the very first guests or maybe mm -hmm. the first guest that we had. So it was good to have you back on. And um, I'd love to just talk a little bit today about your course, but also about the work of race equity and where all our responsibilities lie um, right. based on where we're located um, socially and all of that. So I wonder if you want to just kind of orient us to this conversation, like where are we with the work? You know, 2020 was uh, a pretty big year of maybe we'll say awakening for some people and a reactivation for other people with the movement for black lives and like anyway uh yeah. orient us to this conversation where are we at with this work today so it's interesting because this particular workshop is not a new workshop for me it's uh offering that i've been offering for about four years now and um for the most part people didn't want the work right when i would send proposals for workshops it wasn't that folks didn't want to work with me um, they often would choose a less political workshop for me, one right. about parenting, one about, um, you know, manifesting, yeah, manifesting, things like that, self-care. But, you know, folks didn't want me to use the words white supremacy. I mean, in 2020, in 2019, 
I had folks wanting me to sign contracts for presentations in 2020 with the agreement that I wouldn't use the word white supremacy. I didn't sign any of those contracts. And it's quite a different time period, right? It's right. the period of there's actually too much work. Can't teach all the workshop offerings that people want to make, um, I think. Part of it's performative, right? That right now it's popular to stand with Black lives to a certain extent. Right. And people don't want to be called out as problematic or canceled. And, you know, different people have different feelings about cancel culture. I'm for anything that motivates change. And also I'd like to see sustained change and not performative change. Right. So um, it's... I'm in my own practice of being able to hold two things. One, that I'm grateful that these conversations are happening. And two, feeling uh, preemptively frustrated, which we've talked about before in private conversations, Amber, that folks will expect for things to kind of settle down and go back to normal. And right. then we don't have to talk about this again until 10 or 11 black people are killed at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I feel excited that, you know, folks want to take these classes, that there's opportunities to have these conversations, that it's more regular for me now to go on social media and see non-Black folks talking about supporting Black people and Black people's safety. And also I feel like people need to remember we're at the beginning of this, that, you know, it's not... We're not hundreds of generations out from this oppression. We're not That's even right. one generation out from it. Um, I'm the first generation in my family that wasn't born under legalized segregation, and I'm only 40 years old. So, you know, like I'm in the first generation. I have cousins that also were born in that way, but I have first cousins who were born, born under segregation. So it's just... We're very much in the beginning, and maybe in 10 decades we can look back and say that 2020 was a catalyst but right now 2020 just feels like more of the same of what i've experienced in my own lifetime and what i probably could imagine that my grandparents felt about their lifetime right um, all of my grandparents would be over 100 years old if they were still alive and all of them would probably still have very vivid recollections of, you know, assassinations of Martin Luther King, Martin Malcolm X, Emmett yep. Till, multiple lynchings. Like we're not that far away. And so the same way that that's very close in my own bloodline for white people, for white presenting people, it's still very close in your bloodline. This is your history also. And right. it's not far away. And you know, I would be inclined to say that is more white history than black history because black people didn't create this history, right? Like yeah. we have a history that started before enslavement and continues now, but in terms of like enslavement and Jim Crow, the parts that like most people don't want to talk about, that's not black history. That's white history. White yeah, history. it was created, defined and pushed forward by, right. you know, white white folks and the white agenda. Right. I mean, I remember reading earlier this year something that I hadn't really thought about, but like that the Nazis visited the U.S. to take tips take notes, how yeah. to create an oppression in their own area. And so white people need to be conscious of the fact that like you want to feel sensitive about the Holocaust and you should and people were murdered and their lives were stolen, forever changed, as they were in enslavement, as they were in the genocide against indigenous people all over the world through colonization. So all of these things are the same, but we only want to think about the part that we can like uh, readily separate ourselves from. And you know, my encouragement would be to not separate yourselves from the things that feel uncomfortable about whiteness because it's part of how you get to live carefree as a white person until 2020. Right. Right. Like, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're talking on, um, this sort of like not distancing yourself from, you know, the places where you might have privilege or the places where maybe you are part of this system of oppression and you can realize like where that comes up. I think that there's 
a lot of power in actually embracing the privilege that you hold, because that means you can get over your guilt about it or whatever you think about it and really just like use that to mobilize and like use it for good. Do you know what I mean? Like if I, if I don't ever uh, cultivate the awareness that I move through the world with privilege and then I have access to certain knowledge and systems and resources that you might not have or a black person or a disabled person or whatever, um, then I can't actually use those resources to help make things right. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so sometimes the sort of like, I don't see color or, well, I'm not one of the, you know, white supremacists that are storming the Capitol. Therefore, (laughs) you know, I'm a good person. Like, I think that keeps us stuck in, um, well, like you said, sort of the desire for things to go back to normal. But like the realization, I think that's important for us to have is that normal didn't benefit everybody. And so the way for us to like actually get to that place that I hear so many people calling for of like unity and peace and all that kind of stuff is like, first we have to actually admit, you know, what's going on here so that we can move forward with. I mean, I, I, I spoke to it the day after the inauguration because, you know, I, again, we can hold two things at one time, right? I can be excited that um, my children, uh, my nieces can uh, turn on the television and know that a person whose skin color is similar to theirs, who may have a similar background to them, is now in the second highest office in our country, right? That feels exciting. It feels exciting that Trump wasn't reelected and also he barely wasn't reelected. And so it's like uh, the folks who voted for Biden, especially white folks or who didn't vote for Trump might feel like, oh, it was a great victory. And it's like, uh, it was a barely victory. Yeah. And it was a barely victory, not because not enough people voted, more people than ever voted. And still almost half thought that what Trump was offering, what he was saying, what he was curating and cultivating for the people was best. And that feels like, oh, we have much more work to do. We've barely even cracked it open <laughs> because more, almost half of the people who voted wanted this person that doesn't even account for all the people who didn't which i was reading an article that a lot of the folks who stormed the capitol didn't even vote (laughs) and that was my same (laughs) chuckle to myself that was my same like well you picked a heck of a way to engage in the political process right (laughs) right you didn't even vote but you what so anyway that part which, you know, I have different feelings about like shaming people about voting. I, I don't actually care if what you decide to do for yourself in that process, but for you to not vote and then storm a place because the election didn't turn out the way that you thought it should, it's kind of make ironic. It makes sense. It's, the kids ironic. Were so yeah. <laughs> it's ironic to me, but you know, that, that separation leads us to not, um, and when I'm saying separation, I'm not talking about the same divisiveness that I'm accused of all the time, right? I'm accused of divisiveness all the time. Probably even in this interview, someone will say she's being divisive. Whatever. <laughs> what I'm talking about is like, this. Is, these are your people. Mm-hmm. These are your grandma, your mima. You're not going to tell me that people didn't watch it and see people they know. And say like, oh, well, that was my friend that I just was arguing about this with on Facebook, but we agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. And then now they've taken their agree to disagree to another place where people were actually killed and hurt. Yeah. And the point is like this, we can't agree to disagree on these particular topics. And so, you know, when the inauguration was happening and people were saying, you know, I think I counted the word unity used at least 100 a times yeah. on TV that day. And for me, and I said it online and I lost followers from it and I got a nasty inbox about it. Unity, currently, the definition that they're throwing around is not the real definition of unity. Because unity means that we can all exist free of harm, free of being made small, abuse, 
oppression. But what y'all really mean is y'all want quiet. Right. Y'all want law and order and y'all want us to stop protesting. Y'all want people to stop asking you to redistribute your resources. You want to be able to go back to how it was before with whiteness centered um, and denial of access to most things for everybody else, as long as it doesn't harm or hurt you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to participate in that type of unity or peace. You know what I mean? Like Martin Luther King Day just came. And at this point, I don't even go on social media because it's really quite irritating yeah. the way that his quotes are used and the way that this was the most hated man in America on the day that he died. That's why he died. He was pulling together, not just black folks, but poor folks. And it's unfortunate that he wasn't able to move his work forward further because then I think that most white people would be on the side of justice and not on the side of whiteness anymore if they really took a clear look at the way that their whiteness is actually weaponized against them also. Of like, you're white, but that's it. We don't really care about any of your other needs (laughs) besides helping us monitor and oppress other people of color. Like these larger powers aren't, you know, like sometimes when we're having conversations about race and people are like, well, it's not actually about race. It's about class. I'm like, it's about both. Yeah. And for white people, you need to realize that your whiteness will not protect you in the long run even though you might feel like it has, it hasn't. Look at how many people have died. White people have also died because of this pandemic. And that is about class. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's also killed more black and brown people because it's also about race. Like both things are happening at the same time. And we're along all of that to say we're a very long way away from this unity walk that people want to be on, this Kumbaya festival that feels like, oh, Kamala's in the house. Let's all hold hands and sing together. We're done. Yeah. We're not. We're not done. We're very much at the beginning. And um, the way that we get there, I don't think that most of us even have the space to visualize it because white supremacy robs us of our imagination. We can't think of solutions outside of the ones that are in front of us. And when someone does give a solution that's really far away from what we've been told is normal, then we um, uh, immediately we have a million stories about why it's not possible. And right. to me, that's not a indicator of the like ridiculousness of the prospects. To me, it's an indication that like, oh, we really can't even imagine liberation for ourselves and others because all we've known is oppression. Right. So, and just to like clarify what you're talking about, you know, I've heard this type of rhetoric with the, when people talk about defunding the police and moving that money into community programs that could prevent some of the problems that police end up encountering and all of that there, it's like, well, what about rapists and murderers? Like, what are we going to do with them instead of like, okay, let's talk about what this, you know, that our brains, I think is very interesting that like, I've noticed this a lot when conversations about race come up that, you know, our lizard brain, the sort of primal parts Mm -hmm. of our brains is always scanning for threats, right? And sometimes it's not the saber-toothed tiger chasing us, although life has gotten a lot more dangerous for a lot (laughs) of us these days. But like usually now threat is perceived as like being uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And like having these conversations that feel high stakes or or things like that and that we... um, And I wonder if that's the sort of like immediate thing that comes up that says like, oh, we can't, you know, because it's always been done this way and you don't understand how big these systems are and it just wouldn't work. And like when we haven't even been given an opportunity to fully like imagine the solution, much less like try something small, you know what I mean? And so I know you've talked a lot lately about reimagining not only your relationship to this work, like the work of anti-racism and equity, but also what the work even is for each of us. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think, for myself, I I grew up with a librarian and a historian for parents and school being a very big part of my life and like education and constantly reading and feeling like, oh, well, like I have this information and I'm reading this Facebook post or this Instagram post and this person's posting something that 
is contrary to hundreds of things that have been printed, said, what I know to be true in my own experience, let me come here and educate them, right? Because they don't know. And I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like the internet is a very vast place. These conversations are happening in a lot of different spaces. And if you don't know, it's because you don't want to know. And not that I don't care about educating. I still will say, like, I'm an educator in different ways. I feel like my energy is not best utilized in arguing these points with folks. Because it's one thing if someone doesn't know. I, I truly hold the space that when a person wants to learn a thing, there's not a thing that can stop them from doing it. That's right. And so I don't. I don't buy into this, like, I don't know where to start bullshit that people like to pull when we start to talk about race. Mm-hmm. Um, you might not know where to start, but you ain't going to start sitting at home still doing the same exact thing that you've been doing or not uh, engaging all of this brilliant scholarly work that's out here for you to get into. Right. There's mm-hmm. literally hundreds of well-written books by black people and people of color. And then also by white people of scholarly work. So you could get into it if you wanted to, right? But I also hold the space that a lot of the conversations that I get invited to um, are only intellectual conversations about it and not a conversation about what a real person needs to do in their real life on today, on a Tuesday morning. And um in that way i feel inclined to bridge that gap for people of like oh i know there's a problem i i see the problems i'm i have some small solutions for myself and also i want to be in collaboration with people around larger solutions mm-hmm. and that's for me that's where i am in my work around like what are solutions right now while we also intellectualize and philosophize around the long-term solutions. But what are some solutions on today um, that move us forward in that? Um, And what are some new ways of being for myself, but also in community with other people to move it forward? Um, And, you know, coming really back to something that was said on one of the previous episodes with um, Kari, I think their name is. Oh, Corinne. Corinne, yes, Corinne. Corinne, um, sorry, Corinne. Corinne yes. <laughs> Carlson. Yeah. Corinne Carlson. I'll look up and that episode. <laughs> she was saying that charity is something that like keeps us comfortable, mm. and solidarity asks us for more, and it's really uncomfortable, especially when we talk about decentering whiteness and structures of power. So. You know, it's the space of how many people are willing to really get uncomfortable. And that includes myself, right? Of what am I willing to release or let go of? And, you know, even when I think about reimagining, for folks who might not know, I'm a huge proponent of abandoning public education models. I don't think it can happen in one fiddle swoop because a lot of different children and families need a lot of different support in school. The actual structure of school means a lot Mm -hmm. of different things to a lot of different families, right? It can mean food source for a lot of people. It can mean warmth inside a building, clean bathroom, like school can mean all of those things. And also my own perception is that school doesn't mean the best education for children. It's not, it wasn't designed for that. There's very clear history around how public education came to the United States, and it's very much tied to creating workers. That's right. When um, the previous administration put their person in charge of schools, uh, Betsy DeVos, there was outrage. You know, for folks who don't have kids or aren't involved in children's lives or aren't school teachers, maybe that like went over your head. But because I had a child who was about to enter kindergarten, you know, I saw lots of conversations and read lots of articles about it. And, you know, in public spaces and in conversation with folks, I kept saying, like, well, what would happen if we all just pull our kids out? Or if we just protested for one week, no one goes to school, no one goes to work, what would happen? And here we sit, a full school year in of children at home, parents primarily, parents and caregivers. I'm not discounting the teachers that are holding online spaces. And still, every single parent I know who has children that are school aged at home 
whether they're engaged in online school or not, has either had to hire another person to come into their home to support that, or for the most part, try to work and school their kids at the same time. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's going swimmingly well, but I am saying that there are enough of us concerned with that to push forward the agenda of shifting how it is, how school is navigated and offered. And also like children shouldn't have to go to school to have food. Mm-hmm. They should have food because if they don't have food at home, they can't come to school ready to learn in the way that school is set up anyway. So like, when are we going to start to imagine solving those problems right. instead of the problem of like, oh, you know, we, we just need to get back to school because we need to get back to normal. And I'm like, the normal wasn't working either. Or we, we need to get back to school so, so the parents can come back to work and because yeah. that is the, yeah, that's the real and because we aren't spending the same amount of money. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I ain't bought yeah. my kids no school clothes. Y'all are at the house. Wear these same short jogging pants. I might as well. We're not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> but it's like, I- I'm sharing that to say, like, we couldn't imagine what it would mean to have our children at home. And so then we're in this forced place that's caused a lot of hardship. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. especially thinking about children on IEPs and special learning programs and who that's where they receive their occupational and physical therapy. Um, that part, like that feels really rough. And also like we've managed it this long. What would it be if we just decided to reimagine the whole thing? Mm-hmm. What, what would happen if we decided to actually formulate systems of producing and schooling and living that actually supported the humans engaged in it? Yeah. What would that look like? You know, like, and <laughs> I think some like of us, this. it wouldn't look like this. No, it wouldn't look like this. And if we think about the, you know, each of us listening, <laughs> the jobs we have, the, you know, community groups we're part of, the, the schooling, all the things that are part of our normal lives, like our everyday lives, um, and how much those things have shifted this year for, or, or in the past year, which was forced on a lot of us because of COVID-19, but is just an illustration of the fact that like <clears throat> the entire world pivoted on some things, right? Like right. disabled people have been saying for years that they need work from home accommodations and telework and all the things that was like told it was too hard and too expensive and too big of a deal. But then this year we saw it happen immediately, right? That like, it's not that these solutions can't happen. It's that there's a very real reason why there is a status quo in place and there's a a group of people that that benefits and it, and it doesn't benefit them as much to have, you know, more human centered processes and support systems. Like you just said, I wonder, um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about like not just educating yourself and having these intellectualized conversations, but actual sustainable change. Like what are you personally doing in your life each day to like make the change that you say you want to see in the world? And one of the things that I've been talking to um, other white folks about, and when I talk about this work is around uh, building resilience and like to be able to tolerate really being in this work in the in the uncomfortable ways that you've talked about that if we're gonna really fully reimagine like the ways that we live and work and be in relationship to one another like you need to be i think resourced and like prepared to have those type of conversations and those types of explorations which i i think is a a tall order to ask people to go to like this place of uncertainty sometimes, right? Like we, when we, when we reimagine the way that the world could look so that all of us are able to, so we can have that unity, you know, that we talked about, like it takes a lot of work to get there and it takes a lot of confronting, you know, where is our place in upholding white supremacy? You know, even if we think of ourselves as like a good white person who has a lot of black friends or whatever. right? Right. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, what are some specific practices? You know, luckily the yoga practice gives us a lot of technology right. to deal with <laughs> uncomfortable emotions and stuff right. like that. Um, can you talk about building resilience and um, 
being able to really, and what I'm talking about is like, if you get called out for saying something problematic, if somebody, right. you know, if you have, uh, if you want to have one of those conversations with a family member or a friend who you've decided it's not okay to agree to disagree, like, right. what is some work or some practices that people can do to really build up that tolerance to be able to stay and, and right. really stay in that discomfort of this work? Well, you know, I think one of the first steps is that they have to have a real dedicated practice to confronting these things in themselves on a daily basis. Because if you aren't, if, if it's not a practice for you to confront these things daily, you don't really have the space to be confronting other people, which is what I see happen, right? We get into the performance right. Olympics of who's the wokest white person on this post. And, um, you know, I'm not a comment reader, but when I do get caught up in reading those comments, it's just kind of like, we do want to be in the place of educating. And it is the responsibility of white folks to call in other white folks. And also, like, you seem to be doing a whole lot of time on the internet calling people out. Like, what? <laughs> what's your practice for yourself? And um, yeah, who's checking you? Right. And like, what's going on at your home space that right. you have the time to be online calling people out when there's real life call outs that need to be occurring, like real life things that need to be happening. I, I think the internet makes an interesting place to perform for people, yeah. whatever it is you want to perform. I'm guilty of it also. Yep. I think that um, I think it's an interesting space, though, for folks to take a step back from performing online and just doing the work in real time. Yeah. More than like reading a book, but like, what are you divesting from? What are you investing in? Not just money either. Like, what are you investing your time in? Where are you placing your children? Where are you placing all of the things? Like, um, it's been interesting. This year is my first year of like getting multiple emails from like, Etsy and HBO and all these places about black voices. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's interesting. And also y'all ain't showing me no movies on HBO. I haven't already seen as a black person because <laughs> black people go and see movies by black people, but are white people engaging in these black voices and watching these movies? And also knowing that this is just a sliver of black culture that's being shown to you the acceptable version of right. what black people should do live how they should be and that black people live on a wide spectrum all over the globe across this diaspora with different experiences and culture and music and food and language and dance and like that's just a pin drop so it's not really reflective of the variation but to me i think that you know we get into a space of charity even with the movement for black lives. And mm -hmm. my invitation would be for folks to really be focused on their individual solidarity. Cause like if everybody is connected to um, putting down anti-blackness, if everyone's connected to releasing systems of oppression, then we get there. Yeah. But if everybody's focused on telling everyone else what to do and not doing their own work, we'll never get there, right? We'll never, individually get to a place of not upholding these systems. And it's not to say that we will in this lifetime, but if we're moving further and further away from it, then we can be continually in that process. It's like slavery was bad. I don't think that there's a large mass of people who would say slavery was good. I'm sure there are some people who would say it. <clears throat> I've seen it in textbooks where like the slaves were well fed, fed and had a place to sleep. I'm like they had that at home in Africa, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a bountifulness, they were on the most resource dense <laughs> ever. And you brought them here, <laughs> but whatever. The point is, you know, when you first are talking about ending slavery, you have whole generations of people who can't understand why that needs to happen. Okay. Right. We're a few generations out, just a few generations out. And for the most part, we can collectively say, okay, the police weren't right. I mean, the having slavery was not right. So like to me, in my mind, in five or 10 generations, we can get to the place where funding 
does go to feeding people, housing people, clothing people, truly educating people, and also um, taking care of people's mental health yeah. so that we don't actually need as much money for the police. And we're not actually buying military-grade weapons for someone who's supposed to serve and protect, not right. enforce and control. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people can't imagine a different reality because that's all we've been shown. And the possibilities of thinking about something new can happen in this practice of like, do yourself study work, be engaged in the practice in a way that's not providing you a hiding place. That's right. But actually giving you a practice that invites you into discomfort. It's like we, and, and y'all have talked about it here in other episodes of how this practice has really been centered on the physical part. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's really based in how can I hide from what I'm feeling? Let me create a greater sensation in my quadriceps by holding this really intense posture for five breaths instead of, okay, let me move a bit to get my blood circulating and then sit down with this really intense text about white supremacy in the yoga community in my own community and consider what part I play in that and how I'm going to divest from it. Like that's a yoga practice, not, you know, can you, how many times can you go up and wheel in one session? Like right. this is a hiding place. And so, you know, I think those two things are really the only things that you need <laughs> is, are you, do you regularly put yourself in an uncomfortable spot to examine how you're showing up? inside of systems of oppression, in your relationships, um, in the relationship you have with yourself. Because ultimately, oppression is affecting that. How you feel about yourself That's right. is directly connected to this value system that we've all agreed to. And I don't yet know a person who does not struggle with self-worth and self-value. Even the most egotistical, narcissistic person, they more so than anybody are holding a story that they're not valuable. And so it's um, it's harming all of us. It just manifests in different ways. And this work is really about healing that. Um, but you're not healing anything outward. You can only heal yourself. Um, even in offering the course, I don't hold the false assumption that people leave every session feeling good or great. I don't have the false perception that people finish the course and feel good and great about it. There are definitely people who immediately give amazing feedback. And also I can see people's faces on the Zoom screen. Yeah. And, you know, people send messages too to say what doesn't resonate with them. Um, or, you know, after many years of teaching this, I can I can tell the general change in disposition when I've said something that doesn't resonate with people, whether it's because it's tender for them personally or something that they haven't had to consider before. And so all of that to say, I think that for folks who really do want to see a change in a shift in culture, they're going to have to accept something that I'm still working to accept, that things are going to be very uncomfortable before they're different. That's right. And yeah. even what we say we want is going to be so different that it won't be comfortable in the same ways that we know right now. Yeah. And I think, too, you know, I I really encourage folks to, like, look toward the yoga practice if that's part of your, you know, life, which I assume it is if you're listening to this. Um, for the ways that, you know, maybe in the past you've used to like vibrate away bad emotions, like how could you actually use those skills that you already have to help you to stay in the discomfort? Because we know that we can, you know, and I think that for me with this work too, like non-attachment is something that comes up a lot to be like, to be able to engage in work that, like you said, we might not see the type of world we want to live in for four or five more generations, right? If we look at the way that history plays out, we might not see mo movement toward that for a while. So that doesn't mean we don't do the work today. It means we have to be like fully invested in that effort, but hold the results loosely, you know, like do... Mm -hmm. And we know how to do that as yoga practitioners. Like if we've already practiced it with our quadricep sensation, you know, like you right. said. And so we can have that skill transfer, I think, for um, to be able to 
I don't know, to be able to be awake to these issues does mean you're going to be uncomfortable. Um, right. Especially, you know, as a white, like black folks, I think, and people of color, like people who are marginalized have a different sort of experience or relation to it where you can't really turn it off or pretend that it's not a problem. Do you know what I mean? And white folks, I think, can. But that, um, and that waking up to that or allowing yourself, like, it's not that I think people don't know that there's a problem. I think mm -hmm. it's that admitting and confronting that can cause like so much discomfort in the body, which is like what emotions are, right? It's like right. the sensations we're having in our bodies that are connected to the thoughts we think. And that we, you know, we know ways of working with our minds. We know ways of, um, of shifting to more powerful and helpful ways of thinking this reimagining that you're talking about, that it doesn't have to be one approach and that we don't have to sit in the, you know, the guilt and the inaction, which is action, by the way, like right. not doing something is making a choice to, to do nothing. Right. So, um, so I encourage folks to, you know, when you're doing this self-study that Kelly's talking about, and maybe the next time you practice, like what are the things from the practice that you already know how to do that could serve you here? Maybe that's like a question that I would leave right. folks with that, you know, there are already ways that you've been able to use the yoga practice to help you show up differently in relationships or to relate better to yourself. And I think like taking some of those skills and harnessing them for this work is like a really important thing to do. And so that brings me to, I want to talk about your course. Okay. I know that's <laughs> something that is part of that. So, um, tell us about the race and equity course. Um, you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit about last time, kind of how folks came together and like, what can folks expect with the course? Um, yeah, chat about that a little. Yeah, so uh, it's a 12 hour live training um, that's happening online. And it starts March or sorry, February 24th and goes through March 5th. Um, and the enrollment for it opens on February 17th. But this course is not um, an intellectual conversation about race. This isn't us um, just like talking about it in abstract. This is really an invitation to do some self-study um, and transformative work inside ourselves so that we are showing up differently, so that we can cultivate community that is... Um, authentic and then stands in sol solidarity with the folks who are holding the identities that are underrepresented, um, under-resourced, and underestimated. And so we'll meet um, four times in three-hour sessions just to um, dig in around creating community, um, systems of oppression within the yoga communities, understanding our individual responsibility to disrupt those. And then on um, the last session will be dedicated to sustainable solutions. Um, what I really enjoyed about the last cohort and I look forward to with this upcoming cohort was the amount of resources that were shared. Um, you had a lot of folks who came to the course from different places in the work. Some people just curious about how to engage social justice, and then folks who are actively engaged in it and everywhere in between those two places. And so just the amount of resources in terms of um, continued learning for people, I think it ended up being a four or five page document um, that is really rich. Like I'm still working through the resources that I wasn't familiar with. And to me, that's one of the things I liked about this space that we curated because it was a co-learning space of, yes, I'm here as the facilitator offering tools for us to do the work. And also there's a lot of smart people in the world doing this work. And together we can come up with solutions that we wouldn't have thought of on our own. And um, also leaving with that finishing document um, that people can go back to at any time has felt great too, because I'm also going back to that document and also in conversation with folks who took the course um, through, you know, email, through Instagram DMs, like we're still talking about these solutions and how to move things forward in our individual life. And that feels to me um, like the work that I want to be engaged in at this time. Um, not that um, just educating on white supremacy isn't important. It is important. Um, and I'll still do it in the ways that resonate for me, but 
I personally feel like there's a we're in the space of okay, people are starting to get it, so we don't all have to be focused on making folks get it, mm-hmm. and also have folks who are focused on imagining solutions and talking about solutions and executing solutions. And that's the space that I'm, that I'm in for myself is I'm still learning, uncovering, identifying um, the places in myself and in my patterns where I'm upholding systems of oppression. And I am really focused on solutions moment by moment, also day by day, week by week, month by month, 10 years from now. Yeah. And I, I, that's really um, yeah, well said. And I think too, one of the things that's powerful about doing this type of learning and not just the education piece, like you said, but actually like figuring out what your individual role is so that you can get to work and know your lane and stay in it and all that good stuff. Um, is that like when it happens in community in this way, I think it strengthens it so much more mm-hmm. um, that it can feel really isolating, you know, especially after the year we've had where so many people are isolated from their sort of normal community or mm-hmm. their friends or whatever, that being able to come together with a group of people with the same intention, I think is really powerful. And um, like you said, you know, when we all, when we organize and when we are united in our purpose, like we really can make really great change. And I think that um, in my experience, you know, this type of difficult learning work that's really asking us to like look at ourselves and transform, right? Whether mm-hmm. that work is the yoga practice or the work of social justice or body image or any of those things that asks us to like dismantle and unlearn all the things that we've been taught about who we are and what our purpose is in the world and all of that. I think it really helps to be in a space with other people who are going through the same thing because, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's easy for people to maybe look at folks online that they think have it all figured out or they, you know, can go do this work and it's so easy, but we don't really get to hear each other's stories of that messy, like middle part. Right. You know what I mean? And so having a space where you can talk through that and have those uncomfortable conversations and ask the questions that you're afraid to ask and all of that. I think don't underestimate the power of that. If you're listening to this and you're like, I feel stuck. I don't know how to move forward. You know, I feel too guilty to move forward. Any of that stuff, I think being in community with other folks around doing this can be really powerful. And I think that's a a huge opportunity with this course too. Yeah. I think that um, if folks are willing to trust the Mm -hmm. offering, it holds the space for them to make, their own personal discoveries mm-hmm. around um, their privilege, but also the power they have to affect change. And this isn't a course about just like browbeating folks into feeling right. guilty. It's about talking about honestly our perspectives and our patterns so we individually can be clear around what we wish to continue or not continue. And mm-hmm. I think even if you feel super great about the way your life is, you need to be in the regular practice of investigating those things for yourself. Because what you need, just as a person, what you need isn't the same moment to moment, week to week, day to day, year to year. And who you are in this moment is not the same as who you were five years ago or 10 years ago. Maybe it is. I know for myself, that's not the case. Yeah. But also that's, um, that's what provides me the space to say like, huh, does this working relationship still resonate for me? Does this personal relationship still resonate for me? Does how I'm speaking about myself or others still resonate with me? Does what I'm watching, reading, hearing still resonate with me? Does it support what it is I want to offer to the world or how I want to be growing? And I think for a long time, we haven't considered how the centering of whiteness has affected that. And I'm not saying all of us, I'm saying a lot of people haven't had to consider it. Right. And you sit in a moment right now where it's like, you know, I I like to listen to and read a lot of different sources, whether I agree with them or not, just to know what is being said in the world. And it still 
it's baffling to me that people don't see white supremacy or think it's made up. I was reading something about that the other day of how this is just like a guilt play to grab resources by people of color. And I'm like, well, hell, it ain't working. So why yeah. do you have a different plan? Right. But whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever. Nobody's getting rich off white supremacy, but white so <laughs> whatever. But, um, <laughs> but I... I still know that there are people who can't see it, won't see it, don't see it. But for people who would like reasonable logic, who like read a book that wasn't written only by a white person in their lifetime have to know like, okay, what we're seeing is this is the symptom or the, the manifestation of a bigger problem that I want to be a part of solving. Yeah. Mm. And you know, I, I said it in my post where I lost some followers. I think maybe like 20 or 30 people popped off my timeline after the, after I posted it. But, you know, it's like, white people, what's your plan? What's your plan to, to call in your cousins, uncles, coworkers, friends? Because even still, like, there are tons of white folks I know, like, through going to school or in neighborhood that they aren't bold enough to say to me, what they would say in closed company or to each other. And so what I know is that there are white people saying things to other more liberal middle of the road white people. And whether it's because they don't feel fortified to stand up and say something, or they're afraid of damaging that relationship if they say something, they're not saying anything. Yeah. And they aren't making a hard line in the sand around whether or not they'll remain in relationship with these people, which says that the people can continue to operate in the way they've been operating. They don't stand to lose anything by being hateful or harmful. And I don't have the social or political power to put that type of pressure on white people like that. Other white people do though. So it's, you know, um, it's really a matter of how much do you want the world to be free and liberated for all? Are you willing to divest from your grandma? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a thing that is going to eventually have to occur. Like, I was just having this conversation with another person of like, we're raising people, right? And whether you, the people live with you or not, we're all raising people because there are children around you that are in relationship with you. They see you, they talk to you, whatever. And they are picking up the same way we did messages about what is normal and what is best and what is good. And if you're a white person raising young white people and you want them to be more woke, you know, for lack of a better term than you are, you can't raise them how you were raised because then they're going to have to grow up and do the same work that you're doing. And we haven't moved this forward at all. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to say like, yeah, the school system that we're part of, it does not support my children valuing all lives, valuing the earth, valuing real education, you as white people have the social political power to say to school systems, actually, this doesn't meet our needs. And so we're divesting. And in a lot of ways, rich white people have done that. Mm -hmm. They created boarding schools, charter schools, private schools to meet their what they thought were their needs for their children. And there are way more of us that can't afford that so what happens when we decide that we're divesting from public education because it raises white supremacy? Mm. That's a powerful question. <laughs> Just that one. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, are, are you willing to divest from a public education model and truly give your children an education? Because it yeah. can happen. It happened for centuries before schooling occurred. Yep. Like, I was home. Like, I was homeschooled. My whole school, they won't let yep. me read. I'm like, um, evidence actually shows you learn to read quicker outside of a public education model because they don't right. actually want everyone to learn how to read. Yep. Or to enjoy reading. Yep. Like they don't want everyone to be wizards at math. This like th this is a false notion, and there's plenty of resources to support this knowledge that public education was brought here to create a working class. Mm -hmm. Period. The end. And if you're fine with that, if you're raising your children to just be workers in the world, then hold with it. But I, I personally want to raise children who are connected to liberation and it's not going to happen within the systems that we already have in place. So 
you know, I don't think that public education is gonna be dismantled in my lifetime, but I'm definitely gonna raise children who question why learning is presented inside this little box that as soon as one thing goes wrong, nobody can learn anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we created a system that of course is not working in a pandemic. It wasn't designed to support humans. It was yeah. designed to support a system and I, you know, I don't know how to make that more clear for people. I actually don't even want to. I just want to say that we need to, in all the ways, be considering that it needs to look completely different if it's really going to be liberated and free and accessible and sustainable for everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So um, we would love for y'all to check out Kelly's course. Yes. Race and equity, disruption <laughs> as a practice. If this work is calling to you, if this conversation is tugging at your heart and your mind and you're interested, then yeah, the time is now. The yeah. time is now and it is urgent. And, you know, if you feel like you've read a bunch of books and listened to a bunch of things and now you're ready to take some action, right. um, go to the website, accessibleyogatraining.com, check out, get on the wait list. Uh, you'll get some teachings from Kelly. And um, I hope that you'll be able to join us. You know, I think that this this work is so invaluable, not in just trying to create the like the liberation in the world that we want to see and, you know, that unity that everybody wants so bad, <laughs> but really in, you know, the development of each of us and of each of our humanity, you know, and I think really ultimately that's what the yoga practice is about is remembering the truth of who we are. Right. And that we're not all these things that the system sells to us. Um, we're not, you know, our productivity or our beauty or our age or our physical ability or any of those things. And and yet all those things are very real parts of our lives and define our experience because of these systems that we live within. Mm -hmm. And so I really encourage you all to check this out. I thank you, Kelly, for your time today and for uh, putting us in this space of inquiry and reimagining and and dreaming really um but then dreaming with a decisive movement forward yeah so um do you want to leave our uh, our listeners with a, a question or a thought to ponder before we sign off mm, you know i would like to leave folks with the invitation to really sit um maybe over the next 10 days maybe next 15 days and spend some time um writing in depth for themselves about what it would mean to live in their most fullest, freest way. Mm. Um, what would that look like? Um, because I really think if each of us were connected to our whole selves, it would be hard to disregard the wholeness of others. And essentially that's what white supremacy does, right? It that's denies right. the wholeness of each person, denies the variation that exists within each of us. and. If we want to be able to do that for others, we need to be able to do it for ourselves and develop practices around it. So like, you know, in my privates, I've been inviting folks to spend five minutes a day for the next 10 days just writing about that. Mm -hmm. Writing about what it would mean to be your whole self in every situation, writing about what ease would feel like around having what you need around what it would mean to be able to be in right relationship with your family, your loved ones, your friends, your community, what it would mean to exist freely, wear what you want, move how you want, love who you want. Um, and just writing about that expansively, like it uh, exercises our imagination. That's right. So that when we sit down to say like, okay, how do we defund the police? We already have some vision in our mind. We aren't starting from the place where the police are centered as the only solution. That's right. Yeah. That's great. Thank you, okay. Kelly. You're welcome. Thank you for this time. And thank you to everybody listening. I am really excited about this cohort. So I hope folks will sign up and join. Awesome. All right, y'all. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. I am Kelly Nicole Palmer, the editor of this podcast and a staff member at the Accessible Yoga Training School. I serve as a communications manager and a course instructor. I feel excited because a new cohort is forming for my training, Race and Equity, Disruption as a Practice. This next section of the 12-hour live training will run February 24th through March 5th. 
If you've been thinking about engaging with this work, we have a live info session with me on Wednesday, February 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This course is more than a conversation about race. It is an invitation for each of us to investigate the parts we are doing to uphold systems of oppression on and off of our yoga mat. Our cohort will learn together, collaborate with one another, and build intentions, action steps, and strategies to move the needle forward for justice in our yoga spaces and in our greater world. Join the waitlist now at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review wherever you get podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can suggest a topic, ask a question for Amber or Juvener to answer on the podcast, or recommend a guest that you'd like for us to interview. All of that can happen at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.